Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining us. Uh, this is part of our COVID-19 Keeping Up with the Moving Target series of webinars. Today, we'll be talking about clinical updates in COVID-19. Without further ado, I want to present our moderator, Alfred Berger, fantastic uh, hospitalist and, and member at SHM. Um, Alfred, feel free to introduce yourself and take it away. So thank you all. I am a member, as uh, Christopher Jane said, I am a, I'm Alfred Berger. I am a, a hospitalist at Mount Sinai Beth Israel in New York City, part of the Icon School of Medicine. I am also an active member of SHM. I've been the uh, chair for the past few years of the Digital Learning Committee and uh, a member of the Education Committee, and I'm currently a member of the clinical um, clinical sort of updates talks. Um, I'm really happy and really excited to listen to um, our peers here, um, Dr. Ben Bodner from Johns Hopkins uh, or Johns Hopkins Medicine down in Baltimore, uh, Maryland, as well as Ibrahim Barcuda, part of uh, Harvard University and a hospitalist at the Brigham and Women's Hospital up in Boston. With that, I'm going to turn it over to them. They're going to start it off. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Berger. Um, uh, thank you very much for joining us through a uh, collaboration to uh, truly share uh, update knowledge and um, up-to-beat uh, evidence about uh, COVID-19 treatment. Uh, my my colleague and uh, and co-presenter, Dr. Bodner, um, uh, we will be going through slides. Uh, these are our disclosures. I. Uh, uh, do receive payments for my research, and I do have relationship for advisory boards and honoree. In terms of the claiming credits, uh, we do have these following instruction. Also, the uh, link will be posted for you. And uh, I would like to give a shout out to the collaboration to produce this content with uh, our partner here, um, that they will have also more information in the chat box. Uh, Dr. Bodner, is it okay if I go ahead and, and just state the objectives and go through a couple slides? Um, mm. Fantastic. So uh, our learning objectives discuss the finding from RCTs, treatment in hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Uh, then we're going to go through a quick evaluation of guidance. Um, and I'm going to be very specific of using the word guidance for treatment of COVID-19 patients requiring hospitalization. This is the Society Hospital Medicine Platform. Uh, we, we, we do care about the patient throughout their progression uh, through their treatment, but here we will zoom in on the inpatient evaluation and treatment, and then review the differences between the guidance, really protocol and policy, and where we're going to go um, uh, from here a year into the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. If you're, if you're a hospitalist like me, like, like Ben, like Alfred, like all of us, uh, this is our hospitals day, and this is shout out to the 50,000 uh, clinician plus uh, in the U.S. and the many thousands beyond that are caring for patients day in, day out. When the world shut down last year, the hospitals got deployed and advanced the care for the patient uh, day in and day in until today and beyond. Um, so. Um, I do have a couple slides to share with you about um, what we learned so far from this accelerating uh, pathway for treatment. Uh, what do we know? 
uh, please use uh, the information uh, with discretion regarding what you use in your uh, institute and the guidance that you have from your infectious disease specialist, uh, from your immunologist, from everybody would care for the patient as, as a 360 uh, team. So first, I'm gonna go over the evidence that we learned about remdesivir. Uh, this is the first evidence. This is uh, exhibit A. This is the ACTT1 um, uh, published, peer-reviewed. We know overall there is benefit. Um, there are specifically some benefit uh, when patients are a little bit sicker, but not too sick. So um, again, this is what we learned from uh, three specified subgroups. And you could see that line, the more it splits and keep it distant from each other, the better. And we know that uh, for specific patients, the treatment would work. Next, please. Then we went into the exhibit B. Um, what about five days or 10 days? There is benefit. It again, depends on the patient. And I'm gonna touch on an important aspect of what would be the difference between uh, that concept of heterogeneous uh, virology and, and patient response. This is not a homogeneous response to COVID-19 across the many patients that we treated. And, and we do have more sessions that we will go over the epidemiology of the hospitalization of COVID-19. Now, exhibit three, same medication versus now standard of care, the excellent standard of care that clinicians would do uh, in the hospitalization. The p-value uh, is not statistically significant, but you would see there is a split uh, of what would be the, the standard of care plus or versus standard of care plus remdesivir. And then the fourth clinical trial, uh, we know about the, the uh, addition of remdesivir specifically for that uh, moderate COVID-19. Now, uh, we are pretty much out of the last spring. We start putting categorization of what would be severe, what would be moderate. And we know there is benefit based on the subgroups that went into the clinical trials. So overall, next slide, please. We know that there is benefit. The benefit is uh, specific to where the patients are in their disease. And, and this is unfortunate because we want to get the best patient to the best treatment. Uh, this is the living document that the Annals of Internal Medicine been updating and aggregated these four trials. And the idea was where we see that global aspect of the care. Next slide, please. And the conclusion uh, that out of these four randomized trials that included adults uh, with severe COVID-19 and remdesivir, comparing to placebo, there is improvement in the outcomes in terms of uh, length of stay in terms of that uh, organ-specific scoring and may reduce mortality. So every time we look at evidence like this coming out, we want to put it in the clinical practice, and that's where the NIH recommendations came in. And as I promised now, we know where the patients are in terms of their progression, in terms of how uh, unfortunately sick they are, and we know that uh, remdesivir would work the best for hospitalized uh, patients requiring oxygen, but not requiring that invasive component or ECMO. So these are the evidence. Uh, use it with discretion. We know it works. Uh, reach out to your um, uh, hospital, your health system, your institute to provide the best care at the bedside. But the story did not stop there. Next slide, please. 
the science starts going uh, forward. And step by step, this is the recovery trial, uh, a study that all of us were um, excited to see. This is dexamethasone in hospitalized patients with uh, COVID-19 uh, versus the placebo. And placebo here is not is not nothing. It's the standard of care. So this is DEXA versus the usual of care. And you would see there are benefits in terms of mortality, in terms of where the patients are in their progression. And there is a specific, pretty much mostly if patients are a little bit sicker. So if no oxygen required, it seems like if you could see these curves like overlapping. Next. After recovery, we went to Codex and there is benefit. This is a little bit smaller data set. Uh, the risk set is in the bottom. And uh, you would see now we're adding a little bit of benefit for the patients. So uh, uh, next slide, please. Uh, we, we, we went now from DEXA to hydrocortisone. And uh, the p-value here is not statistically significant, but you could see there is a numeric tendency or what statistician would call, I could see a little bit of hypothesis generating, uh, but again, we're looking at the evidence and we need to be very cautious of how we interpret it. Next slide, please. Done it again, went back, got the hydrocortisone. Again, you're going versus the, the standard of care uh, where patients now are getting treated with what we know the best for the patient. So um, there is some type of uh, tendency to say, okay, there is that heat map and the heat map would tell us about the totality of evidence. Next slide, please. And then we said, okay, what would be next for this? Meta-analysis. So you aggregate the data, you look at it, that diamond shape that you would see, uh, it's going less than one, better for the patient. Uh, above one, it's pretty much would not favor that steroids. And if you aggregate all of them, and please note that uh, some of them, they're big trials, uh, some of them, they're smaller, there is benefit. And that's how it led to the addition to that, to uh, what would be the guidance from the, uh, the the governance of what we do at the bedside. Uh, next slide, please. Um, we did not stop there. We went back, uh, more reports, and you need to take the patient reports, that story of success, and, and put it in scientific testing. And we know now that probably that convalescent plasma that Dr. Bodnar is going to touch on, uh, there is that diamond shape that we all look at in the medical journal, and, and there is pretty much around one. So I would leave you with this slide, and Dr. Bodnar will we'll, we'll go over more details and data about this. What did we learn so far? So uh, remdesivir uh, went into the guidance, dexamethasone, IV or oral, uh, at the bedside, helping patient a little bit more sicker. Uh, if they're not, unfortunately, that sick doesn't seem there is a clinical benefit in terms of the, um, uh, the context of clinical trials. Uh, the TOSI story, Dr. Badnar will, will add on it. Uh, and that's all on the top of the clinical care. Uh, proning seems to work. Specific subset, more publication about this. Anticoagulation, and uh, we're not going to give you the answer this session. We would be talking about uh, more uh, throughout this uh, uh, a, uh, a group of lectures, but the anticoagulation, at least in terms of the prophylaxis, uh, seems it's helping. The permissive hypoxemia, uh, the tendency to um, uh, give more of uh, non-invasive oxygenation, 
it's helping the patient now. The ICU management is helping. Uh, the prevention of secondary infection, not systematically, just a subset of patient that uh, we learn how to protect, how to, how to provide the best care. Uh, it seems it's working. Next slide. I, I, I put another set of what we learn, the uh, monoclonal antibodies, and I am using the, the scientific name there. A little bit more use in the outpatient than the inpatient. Uh, we're getting reports about some use in the, in the inpatient for specific uh, patients, and uh, I discussed with you the convalescent plasma. Um, next, and then next to that word treatment, you would see the efforts. So th this is the um, the other world that we live in, the clinical trials, where uh, we need to keep going, we need to keep testing, we need to make sure the efficacy and most importantly the safety of the patient and equipoise is balanced. And there are many of these trials going. Uh, in my institute, in your institute, but just for you to know that uh, we need also to keep keep an eye on new evidence. Uh, next slide, please. So um, this is a special category, rest in peace, the hydroxychloroquine, uh, the lopioid reto, the, the uh, immunoglobulins. We know it's not helping. It, it, we tested it with the intention that helped our patient, but does it seem it made it to that guidelines? Uh, next slide, please. In, in, in terms of uh, what we've done um, to accelerate that science, uh, vaccination uh, save lives. Saving lives will be the vaccination. $18 billion been invested uh, to go toward the makers of the, the vaccines. And, and that was the right thing to do, and now we're seeing the fruit of that. Eight million, uh, eight billion only for the treatment, mostly for the monoclonal antibodies. I, I want you just to think about about how the federal funding for treatment acceleration would work. Uh, now, when we hit in the U.S. 135,000 COVID-19 uh, patient at, at some point a uh, couple weeks ago in the U.S., uh, we wanted also to think about treatment. We need to think about that acceleration uh, of the innovation and in what we do. Next slide, please. I want you to look at this slide that you're all familiar uh, with from the uh, DOD uh, about Operation Wrap. I, I wish that the way this been done is what been done for treatment of COVID-19. This is well uh, thought of that advanced that vaccination program. Uh, we want to do the same, if not even better at the bedside. Uh, next slide, please. To put that in context, this is one of my references from the New York Times about the public view, where if you try to put everything in categories or bucket, we know that remdesivir is an FDA approved drug, proning works, so widely used, but it did not really approach that uh, FDA approved. Uh, and, and the list would go on and on to uh, promising evidence, tentative or mixed results. You've seen that diamond shape would be hovering around one. Uh, not promising, which we we took, tested, and then put it back on the shelf. And and the, there's the pseudoscience or the fraud. Maybe injecting bleach will be the category below that, uh, lower than than the fraud. Next slide, please. Um, every time we think about a treatment, think about it. We we look at the end control studies, about the reports, what we read in journals, the observational, the experts' opinion but we need to go into these large RCTs. You've seen the remdesivir, you've seen the DEXA, uh, Dr. Bodner would go over the TOSI. Uh, the idea that we need 
maybe one or more of these RCTs to do the systematic review and then establish what would be the best for the patients. The, the punchline here that uh, this has all happened within a year. This is a collective work uh, to bring, again, the right patient to the right treatment. In, in, in what an honor to be part of any efforts like this to curb an unfortunate pandemic that hit us all together. But this is one year, and we're able to do uh, more and more for our patient. Uh, next slide, please. So with this, I would like to give you these um, guidelines or guidance, and I, I will explain why I keep saying uh, guidance. Uh, NIH uh, provides uh, support. I do have another slide to, to kind of give you a flavor of that. But again, these are evolving evidence. So you might, you might see something uh, making it to the guidance or not. And then over time, this is not a static place. So NIH is one. Um, uh, CDC is two, and CDC would give you also the SARS-CoV-2 uh, guidelines, management, treatment, and there is there is a specific section of what we could do in the hospitalization. And if you're if you would like to know what's going on um, across the pond from us in the UK, uh, NICE, the National Institute for Healthcare uh, Excellence, also would give you something that pretty much all these uh, regulating bodies there. They're, they're aligning in terms of what would be the best for the patients. So uh, with this, uh, I want you just to pause a little bit and, and think about it. So policy is, is something we, we know it's a governing body. The policy is X, and we're not there yet. There are protocols where you agree to framework that it would really designate area of practice. I, I think what we do is between guidance and guidelines. And, and the idea that, um, keep your practice updated, keep your, keep your uh, knowledge up to beat. And, and that's the goal of, of this program uh, with, the, with the talks that will be posted later on, uh, that we need to be collectively looking for what would be the best uh, in terms of the guidance or hopefully guidelines. And I hope one day and very soon we'll see policies and protocols that establish. This is something that learn how to be humble um, uh, when COVID hit us. So um, this is a, a, a data set. They looked at the SOFA uh, score, something we do for critically ill patient. We know it works. Um, and if you, if you compare the SOFA score for the area under the curves for COVID-19 patient only for the age, the model would really uh, be favoring the age only. So sometimes we know extrapolating science would not be um, the best. We need to test it in the context that been done. And that's the reason we need to think about new lenses for the COVID-19 and how we could really keep up with that moving target. Uh, the next slide would also reemphasize the same uh, thought. Uh, this is a publication uh, in final form in, uh, uh, in Jack, in which very unfortunately, but uh, having heart failure in COVID-19 would really increase the mortality in in couple of folds. And I want you to think about this. So it's not really one size fits all. It seems like the sicker we are with COVID-19, uh, the harder really it gets. Um, and, and here we have one out of four um, uh, heart failure patients, they really had the risk of death or the mortality uh, during observation. And we need to shed light on again, the complexity of what we do. More evidence, um, this is one of 
a slide that I always label it as association and causation. Uh, we knew that uh, more and more publications saying uh, vitamin D is lower in severe uh, COVID-19. Uh, what about treating that uh, low um, uh, vitamin D? And the answer is, is right there. So uh, correcting that would not be pretty much the high dose vitamin D3 did not really curb uh, the outcomes. Uh, think about COVID-19 as, as a, a new entity and how we, again, and I cannot emphasize that enough, to provide the best care. This is a, a publication, and the reference is in the bottom, about really the, the heterogeneous aspect of uh, what would be the phenotype for patients. And, and again, um, it is no one size fits all. And that also directly goes to uh, what would be the treatment. So the categorization of the COVID-19 would help us, would guide us. But keep in mind, it's heterogeneous. Next slide, please. Um, the good news, as always, we as, as a community, we tried always to advance innovation. Um, this is a reference of an article in, uh, in STAT um, where I, 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 we know that uh, glucose monitoring could be that small sticker, but in hospitalization, it's really hard uh, to go through all the uh, approvals to get it. But because we want to make sure uh, the nurses, the, the residents, the attending, the hospitalists, the physician assistants, the nurse practitioners, they're not going in and out of the room. Uh, just advanced that innovation with the glucose monitoring really helped our patient. It prevented the stick. It really gave us a little bit of glimpse that we might do better with advancing uh, innovation, technology, and treatment. So with this, I will turn the mic to Dr. Vadnar, and I will be looking uh, uh, your questions. Thank you. I think that I'm going to take the little bit of prerogative just to ask one question that came up in the chat. Maybe we'll get to some others. I don't want to take all of Dr. Bodner's time. I want to make sure we get through his. But one good question, what would you say from having reviewed a large number of those studies would be the op, uh, you know, the best timing sort of for uh, remdesivir and initiation? Um, I think this also sort of addresses one of the questions at the beginning. You know, some patients come in not so sick, they get sicker. Some come in incredibly sick and get better. What would you uh, use as your triggers? Alfred, this is an excellent question. So I would like to go back and, and, and refer you to the two big trials that done remdesivir. There is the, the, the trigger really about the patient progression. So uh, we all observe patients staying in the hospital because we know they do have all the comorbidities. And I would like to highlight that and then say, okay, we, we will be starting uh, remdesivir, uh, DEXA, and, and so on during hospitalization. I, I think the triggers are really the patient progression. So we used to count the days. Uh, when did you uh, think you had the exposure? When you start having the fevers? But it really, if you stay within the, the guidance boundaries, it's really where the patients start getting the oxygen requirement, or you see a tipping point in terms of the progression. Excellent question. Um, the, the, both trials really had a protocol that thought through what would be the best for the patients. Terrific. Terrific. Thank you. I think that really addressed it. Uh, with that, uh, while I have all sorts of wonderful debates for you, of course, Ibrahim, as always, um, I think we should move to Dr. Uh, Bodner and uh, give him his chance to, to talk about the evolving evidence around a couple of other treatments here. 
Thank you, I, I appreciate it. Um, so I'm gonna dig into a little more detail about two specific potential treatments. Um, and, and it's gonna be case-based um, to kind of give a sense of, of how we might apply some of this evolving evidence. And again, just to go back to um, uh, what Dr. Rakuda mentioned, it is important to consider the difference between guidelines, guidance, protocols, evolving practice when considering these. Um, and, and I'll say that, you know, one of the answers, uh, to, to, to jump ahead, one of the answers I'm gonna give about what I might do in one of these situations, I actually can't do in my hospital because of formulary restrictions. So I think it's important to know the data, but it's also important to understand the practical restrictions as, as these evolve so quickly. So I'm gonna focus a little bit of time on convalescent plasma and tocilizumab. And for each one, uh, next slide please, I'm gonna focus on um, one particular recent study um, to, and, and use that to kind of fill out our overall understanding of where we are in the data for those as potential treatments. So the question is, who, if, if anyone, um, should I, as a hospitalist treating patients um, outside of the ICU, um, treat with convalescent plasma or tocilizumab? Next, we're going to focus on um, a specific reference from the New England Journal uh, for a recent study on convalescent plasma that I think should make us think twice about, about um, even that slide that Abraham showed us earlier that showed no effect. Um, and tocilizumab, uh, we're going to be looking at what is a preprint manuscript, and so I, I want to emphasize that this is not yet peer-reviewed, but you may notice the name, the recovery trial. This is the same extremely interesting, pragmatic, high-quality trial that, for all intents and purposes, brought us dexamethasone, um, which is in very many ways the um, one of the foundations of our treatment approach, um, and, and I think this uh, upcoming publication will, will once again make us reconsider things. Next slide. So we're gonna go through two cases at a couple time points of care. So case one, 67-year-old woman, history of diabetes only on oral medications, mild obesity, um, admitted not to a medical service, but to a surgical service for an elective hernia repair. So um, not acutely ill. Um, no COVID symptoms on admission and a negative swab. Next. She undergoes her surgery. Perhaps she's a little deconditioned. She's going to go to a subacute rehab rather than home. And in that process, she gets a repeat swab because the SAR, the subacute rehab, requires it, and it turns positive. Next. In that context, if your hospital works like Hopkins does, at least these days, she gets transferred off the surgical services and comes to one of the COVID isolation units or a medical service, and you assume care. When you meet her, she is afebrile, no remarkable vital signs. And when you interview her, next. Um, there's not a lot of symptomatology, but you actually do identify that she probably has some new onset loss of taste and smell without other symptoms of acute COVID. Next. So in this context, again, healthy woman hospitalized for an alternative diagnosis, incidental finding of COVID on, on screening, will you give this patient convalescent plasma at the time of transfer? So most would not. Interesting, we will discuss. Um, next question, would you give this same patient tocilizumab? And again, most would not, although, although not quite a skewed a response. Wonderful. Okay, so here's the different case. Similarities, but important differences. A 54-year-old, with diabetes also on oral meds, although this patient has CLL, she's on a chemotherapeutic regimen including rituximab, and cycle three day 22 for our intents and purposes means her last chemo was 22 days ago, including rituximab. 
Um, and she's initially admitted to the oncology service for a fall at home and deconditioning. Again, she was COVID negative on admission, had no COVID symptoms. Next. Um, however, she has a relatively prolonged hospitalization and, and there's routine rescreening at seven days. That's the standard in, in Hopkins at this point. Um, and that routine rescreening returns positive. So much like the other patients, um, transferred to the COVID isolation unit and you assume care. Again, like our other patient, comes without a fever, vital signs stable, interview does not suggest significant acute COVID symptoms, although only with review of systems you identify that she probably has a new loss of taste and smell. Next slide. So the questions are the same. In this patient, somewhat younger, clearly significantly immunocompromised, would you treat with convalescent plasma? So in this immunocompromised patients, we have a majority now who would treat with convalescent plasma, although certainly reasonable disagreement. And then for this same immunocompromised patient at the time of transfer, would you treat with tocilizumab? So a majority no, although a higher proportion, I'm actually rather similar, um, a small proportion would consider at that time. So we're gonna continue with these cases. So now we're back to the first case. This is our 67-year-old, non-immune compromised post-op patient. Four days later, she's still on your service because you can't get her to rehab because she has COVID. Um, she now develops dyspnea, sustained hypoxia to the low 90s, which improves with um, low flow nasal cannula. Um, screening labs at that time note moderate inflammation, a CRP of 8.9, um, and I know uh, different units are used for that, so in this unit of measure, a normal would be less than 0.5, and a D-dimer of 3.2. Again, I know there's a unit issue here, and a normal in, in this assay would be, again, about less than 0.5, not adjusting for age. So again, now we're our four days later, developed respiratory involvement of COVID, um, would you treat with convalescent plasma? Ooh, good debate on this one. All right, so um, following question, this is our non-immunocompromised patient, do you give tocilizumab? And again, we have a, a majority here saying no, and actually uh, a, more strongly skewed than some of our other responses. Okay, so uh, again, a, a parallel progression, right? This is now our 54-year-old um, with significant immunocompromise on rituximab. It is also four days later, and she has developed dyspnea, hypoxia on low flow nasal cannula, and her labs are similar. She has moderate CRP and an elevation of D-dimer. Um, now for this immunocompromised patient with new respiratory disease, do you give convalescent plasma at this point? So yes, now this is interesting. We definitely had a shift for convalescent plasma in this case. Uh, and then the same patient, immunocompromised onset of respiratory disease, um, four days after diagnosis, do you give tocilizumab? And still um, a majority would not give in that setting. So interesting, uh, I, I actually think it's fascinating, um, even with our largest skew, we still have significant portions who are willing to consider treatment in either way for these. Um, so uh, I'm gonna suggest some answers, but I'm, I cannot say that they are absolute, and I think uh, wise, wise folks would disagree on this. Uh, next slide. So here would be my answers, and, and then I'm gonna give you a little bit of the rationale why. So um, next, for case one, our diabetic, um, uh, non-immunocompromised, would I give her convalescent plasma? Actually, I might. In shared decision-making, good counseling on the, on the data we have on efficacy, tocilizumab I would not give her, and we'll talk about why. Next, 
when she develops respiratory disease, I would not give convalescent plasma, even though I might have um, when she was pre-symptomatic or barely symptomatic. And would I give her tocilizumab? I actually, this is what I was referring to. I actually think that I might, although practically at this point in my hospital, I can't because of formulary restrictions. That may change. And I think it's an interesting point of conversation. Next, now we're going on to our immunocompromised patient. Would I give convalescent plasma on presentation? Yes. Next. Would I give tocilizumab? I would not. Next, when they develop respiratory disease, would I give convalescent plasma? And again, this is assuming I've not given it already. I would. And would I give tocilizumab? I probably would not. Now, let me talk about a little bit of the data as to why that is. So convalescent plasma, here's what we know in terms of the background. We know it's safe. So, you know, there is a study that came out of Mayo where they showed over 20,000 transfusions in their expanded access program. Um, and the complication rate is quite similar to, to routine plasma. So under 1% for the vast majority of major complications and much closer to 0.1 or less for some of the more serious complications. But is it efficacious? That's much more complicated. The largest population that's been studied on this is observational and that has some problems. So again, this is the Mayo Clinic Expanded Access Program. They had 35,000 patients. The problem was they had no control group. They only had data on the patients who received convalescent plasma. This is preprint and it's been preprint for months, but I'm sure it will be published with revisions um, at some point. Um, so they were only able to compare between subgroups of people who had received plasma. But what they showed was that in um, those who received plasma before, uh, within three days of diagnosis, which in their study generally meant time of admission to the hospital and testing versus three, versus more than three days after diagnosis, they noted a 30-day mortality split, 8.7 versus 11.9%, which is a significant relative risk reduction. Um, they also looked at those who got high titer versus low titer plasma. Again, they couldn't have a control group for no plasma. And they also noted a significant risk reduction in those who got high titer versus low titer. Now that's observational, but it's also a lot of patients. What does the randomized data show us largely it doesn't show us a lot. Um, small RCTs in China, the Netherlands, Argentina, and India, moderately sized one there. But one thing I would note here is what is the time they were treating these patients with convalescent plasma? In the parentheses by each of those studies, that's the median date from onset of symptoms at the time they were treated. So 14 days from onset of symptoms, 10 days from onset of symptoms, eight days from onset of symptoms. If convalescent plasma is gonna be an effective treatment, it's gonna be an effective treatment before you have an endogenous, endogenous humoral antibody response. And by eight to 10 days of treatment, the vast majority of folks, as far as we understand, have already begun to create their own. So there's at least reasonable reason to believe that while it might not have had an effect on patients who had medium length of symptoms of seven to 10 days, there might be subgroups in which it may still have some effect earlier in disease. Um, and that's where this study comes out. This is a New England Journal randomized control trial published about a month ago. But of note, it was an outpatient study. So it was elderly patients over 75 or over 65 with comorbidities, outpatient, next. They had to have PCR positivity, next. And they had to be enrolled within 48 hours of symptom onset, which meant that they all received convalescent plasma within 72 hours. And that's very significant because if you look at those other RCTs, we're talking eight to 10 days or more after symptom onset. They had to have, we wouldn't call this a fever, but a, a high normal temperature at least, or symptoms of sweats or chills. And they had to have some other symptom, cough, shortness of breath, fatigue, loss of taste or smell, any of that. 
Um, and their outcomes were increased respiratory rate or hypoxia, which was their marker for uh, respiratory failure. And they showed a significantly less uh, incidence of their severe, their severe respiratory disease outcome in those who received convalescent plasma. So they showed a 0.5, so almost a 50% relative risk reduction in the incidence of hypoxia or um, severe tachypnea in these elderly high-risk outpatients. And there are actually a number of patients in each side of the of randomization who developed the endpoint before they actually got the treatment. Um, and if you took those patients out, if you only looked at the patients who actually got convalescent plasma before they achieved the outcome, it was actually an even stronger signal. It was a, a you know a 60% relative risk reduction. And so if you think about how that would inform our cases, um, case one, so she's 67 year old, she's 67 year old and she has several comorbidities. If she had been outpatient, which she wasn't because of an elective surgery, but if she had been outpatient, I think she actually would have been included in this study. And so in that respect, I think it would be appropriate to give her convalescent plasma. Um, was, this was a small study, um, but um, she would have been fit the inclusion criteria. And although she just got you know, a hernia repair, there's not a reason to think she physiologically would have a different response. Um, I think you would potentially significantly decrease her risk of developing more severe disease. Now, would I give it to her later? You know, I, the answer there is, is no. I think the only role for this, if we're gonna find it, is in early disease. Um, and so, you know, the, the outpatient study showed within three days of onset of symptoms, the Mayo observational study showed uh, improved efficacy within um, three days of hospitalization. So in our case, she was four or more days after hospitalization and four or more days after onset of disease. I probably would not expect it to have a significant effect on her at that point. Now, case two, our um, immunocompromised 54-year-old, um, would I give her convalescent plasma? Now, I would, but I will, I will be honest, it's not as driven by the study I just presented as some of the other data that's out there for this. Um, as a 54-year-old, she would not have been included in this group, even with comorbidities, although I think you could argue that a 54-year-old with severe comorbidities, as she does, um, would be at high risk and benefit. But there's also a variety of data, and I won't go through the specific references, but showing that those with significant immunocompromise um, unlikely to be able to generate their own antibody response, um, as this patient would on rituximab, therefore lacking um, B cell uh, activity at this point, she may never be able to um, put together an appropriate antibody response to COVID. And so um, even if she didn't meet criteria for that outpatient study, I'd be giving her convalescent plasma because I'm not convinced she'll ever have an endogenous antibody response. There's been a few cases where significantly immunocompromised folks even months later continue to have PCR positivity um, and seem to have response to convalescent plasma. Um, and because of that, because I'm not giving it by stage of disease, but because of a lack of expected or um, endogenous uh, humoral response, I actually, if I hadn't given it at first, say I'd come on service, I still would give it at day four of illness when she started respiratory disease, although that's a different situation than the reference I gave you. So th that's how I would come to my conclusions. Um, all right, so let's talk about tocilizumab. Um, so, you know, we know it's an anti-IL-6 agent, it's a monoclonal antibody. We know that it increases infection risk, but it has an acceptable safety profile and it's fairly reasonably road tested in rheumatoid arthritis, giant cell arteritis as a, as a second line treatment um, to the routine steroids and also cytokine release syndrome. There's been a lot of case series and cohorts early on. They were neutral or mixed effect. Um, and there's a, a handful and proliferating number of randomized studies. So one of the early randomized studies 
um, the IMPACTA study, um, did show a decrease in the relative risk of mechanical ventilation, that's MV, sorry, I didn't write that out there, um, but it didn't seem to change when the patients got out of the hospital and it didn't seem to change their mortality. And now a caveat here is this study was also done, that first one, the IMPACTA, was also done before we really knew about the efficacy of steroids. So although there was a positive signal, the vast majority of patients in that trial weren't on steroids. And so once steroids became a relative standard of care, um, no longer felt to be good information to go on. Now, a, a more recent study called the REMAP-CAP, and this was actually when I took to the point of how fast evidence is evolving. When I made these slides last week, it was still preprint server. Um, and as of now, it's now published in the New England Journal. Um, and forgive me, I, at least on my screen, the reference is cut off there a bit on the bottom, but this is now published in the New England Journal as of this past week. Um, so this is an ICU only study, but it showed a significant difference in the median number of organ support free days. So that's how many days the patient neither had a high flow nasal cannula, NIPV or intubation or presser support within 21 days. So basically half of the days in the treatment group, mostly tocilizumab and a little cerulimab, which is another one. Um, and there was a significant difference in mortality. And that's an ICU only study though. So even when that was pre-print, folks were starting to get a little interested, but, but, uh, but that was, um, that excitement wasn't long lasting because then there was another uh, trial which actually showed a notable increase in mortality um, in a mixed group in the ICU and floor, um, so much so that their safety monitoring board stopped it early because of increased mortality in the tocilizumab group, in the treatment group. So those, uh, there was mixed support, there was mixed data. The remap cap was positive, but in the, in the background of a lot of other mixed data and with concerns um, about um, the role of steroid use as a standard at the time of the study. So that's the context into which the recovery trial is coming. Um, this is the same um, adaptive trial that um, looked at things including um, um, colchicine, um, hydroxychloroquine, dexamethasone, and um, to, to be random, and, and there was stage randomization. So to be randomized to tocilizumab in this group, you had to be PCR positive. You had to have been randomized into some of their other um, uh, treatment uh, groups and your attending, your attending physician had to think there was nothing that made enrollment unsafe. And so in that respect, it's a very pragmatic enrollment eligibility. Um, and this was a secondary randomization. You had to have an elevated CRP and you had to be hypoxic on room air or on oxygen. They looked at mortality, and if you weren't already ventilated, they, they subgrouped you and they looked at either ventilation or mortality. Next, and, and this is what they found. Uh, and, and I didn't mention this, but this was a large trial. This is 2,000 patients per treatment group. So it really dwarfs any other trials that have been published thus far. Um, at the top, you see significant decrease in mortality for tocilizumab versus standard of care. And in the bottom, you see significantly increased chances you'll be discharged alive. So uh, here's the numbers. So the 28-day mortality um, was 29 versus 33%, which is a relative risk reduction of about 14, 15%. Uh, and it was clearly statistically significant. If you look at the group who was not ventilated um, and whether they died or were ventilated, um, it, it was a similar finding. So you can assume from that that in, in, in some ways it was driven by the mortality data. Also, interestingly, there was actually a significantly lower risk of progression to dialysis in this group, although obviously that's a much lower proportion of patients than even the, the mortality index. And they didn't notice a, a significant signal for increased infections. So this is from the preprint trial in its current form. And again, preprint 
manuscripts will evolve, but they did great subgrouping. And you can see for all these different subgroups, largely the confidence intervals overlap. Um, and so there, were, there was not a large heterogeneity in subgroup response to tocilizumab. But if you look down near the bottom, the one that really stands out is use of corticosteroids. So people who were on corticosteroids, which is the vast majority of the trial, because most, most of it was done after um, corticosteroids became a standard of care, um, did much better compared to those who received tocilizumab and did not um, receive corticosteroids. Now, those confidence intervals don't quite overlap, but they're very close. Next slide. Now, to answer the question, I really like this about the preprint manuscript, but to answer the question that everyone's going to have, which is, well, okay, we have another study and a bunch of mixed studies. They actually embedded a meta-analysis in their own manuscript for all the other existing trials. Um, and what you can see is that by the, the recovery is that square near the bottom. Um, it, its confidence intervals are so much tighter because it is so much bigger than all of the other trials. Um, and the point they're making here is, yes, there's been, a, there's been historically mixed data, but we have such a larger high-quality sample that basically, even with all that data put together, um, our data is essentially the result. And that's what they show. Using, using a meta-analysis here, they showed that their conclusion of, on the roughly 0.86 relative risk um, is the same as if you use all the published trials. Um, so I think this is a very strong trial. Um, I'm sure there might be some revision in some of their statistical reporting um, as they um, get it into publication, but I, I suspect that this will potentially be practice changing uh, after it kind of uh, with a little time. Um, so my answer is for tocilizumab. So next, for our 67-year-old, for our not immunocompromised. So I, I wouldn't use it when she comes to the floor. There are no studies to support tocilizumab use um, outside of the development of severe disease. Everyone's looking at either um, hypoxic on the floor or ICU level care. With subsequent respiratory disease, um, I think I would based on the recovery RCT. So she met the criteria. Um, she met the criteria uh, by CRP, hypoxia. Um, the recovery trial tells us we would reduce her risk of dying by 15-ish percent. Again, on presentation, even in immunocompromised patients, there's, there's no data to support use of an IL-6 agent in that response. And when she develops respiratory disease, I personally would still say no. And that is because we, you know, the main worry here um, is the, the negative effects of immunocompromise. And so in this patient, you would, who's already on rituximab, you're gonna put her on dexamethasone because of her hypoxic disease. You're also then gonna add a third layer of immunocompromise by putting her on tocilizumab. I think we don't have data to be comfortable that that's safe. Um, now, uh, I think data might come out in that regard. And if she were to progress to critical disease, such as needing high flow nasal cannula, I think there would be more argument there. But, it, but uh, you know, a significant portion of patients, even with her risk profile who become hypoxic, will not progress to critical disease. And you could potentially avoid the risks of tocilizumab by continuing to monitor her, her for her progression. Um, as you could see from the recovery subgrouping that was there, um, you know, the tocilizumab would potentially still be expected to work for her even if she subsequently developed more severe disease. I believe that might be my last slide. I'm happy to hear arguments. Um, I expect some brisk ones, um, but I hope that was helpful. And I, I do think those trials are, are, are going to be part of the discussion, at least in the near term, for both of those agents. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, big round of applause, at least for me. I know we can't hear everyone, um, but I, I really enjoyed that. Um, 
even you know having seen the slides a little ahead of time to prepare it was even better in person so thank you i really did enjoy it i think really important stuff um i think all of us can say that institutionally what we can to to dr bodner's part point institutionally what we can use today was different than what we could use last month or six months ago and sometimes you need somebody's approval and sometimes you don't and that changes almost by the hour if not the minute um as this data continues to rapidly emerge and it's hard to to stay on top of it as you your point um pre-print last week printed this week like a pretty quick turnaround not a lot of debate time for debate in some of these um so thank you there were a couple of questions during the talk i'm going to start with those a uh, couple um I may, and I, I actually think I'm gonna start with one um, asked, and I, I'd love either one of you, while I know you spoke on specific topics, I know you both have read widely on both, so please feel free to weigh in. I think that the burning issue today, and to feel most up to date, rather than talking about some of the specifics of each drug is variants, variants, variants. Um, I guess, you know, whether we're talking monoclonal antibodies, you know, uh, versus giving people plasma, how do we think this is gonna alter everything? I mean, obviously, uh, Dr. Brodner, you could talk about the direct plasma, but, you know, Dr. Barcuda, you spoke about a large number of different medicines, some of which do work at a sort of antibody type of level or a molecular level and do i mean it's still very early all we're hearing are very low numbers but and nobody seems to have a real handle on the variants but from what you've seen being on top of this um and having chosen to probably ignore small thought papers on this issue for today's talk uh, or not bring it up first i'm going to turn it over to you and stop sort of babbling because i do think it's such a great question from one of our audience members so dr Berger, i will, I will take a stab at this so um Excellent question. The answer is largely we will see. We're not going to know the answer. C couple of quick thoughts. Uh, convalescent plasma is a snapshot to specific response. So uh, I've been uh, told by many infectious disease that maybe the response is different than what we saw in May or, or September. So taking that snapshot and put it in the time capsule and deploy it in March might not have the same effect. Um, the the data is keep flowing um, about what would be the response to anti uh, monoclonal uh, the anti uh, monoclonal antibodies, uh, how the TOSI would react. But it seems like the remdesivir is it, probably holding that grounds because the the way it works. Uh, Dexa uh, steroids think about it as the immune response or the host response rather than the actual virology. Uh, personal take, I doubt it will change. I think it will still beneficial for the sicker patients. Um, there are a couple of thoughts about the variant would be a little bit more lethal, higher mortality in the UK per reports. Uh, that would be a case for escalating uh, treatment and, and look at that uh, very severe bucket that we see in the patients. Dr. Bodner? Yeah, I think I, um, great question. Uh, we're all thinking about it and, you know, I listen to NPR and it's always being talked about even outside of the scientific community. Um, so um, uh, the monoclonal antibodies are hyper-targeted, right? That's how they work. 
And if the antigen to which that monoclonal antibody changes, that monoclonal antibody will, will either partially or completely lose efficacy. And as far as I know, there was at least one trial of one of the approved monoclonals um, that showed a significant drop in e efficacy for one of the variants. Forgive me, I don't have it off the top of my head. I don't get to use those agents in the hospital, so I don't know them as well. Um, but here's what I'd say about convalescent plasma. It, it, it is the ultimate polyclonal response, right? It is, innate, it is a natural polyclonal response. So, but it's a polyclonal response to whatever the agent was. So, you know, yes, if, if, we, if we, you're using a convalescent plasma from someone who had a wild type infection and you're giving it to someone who had a um, B117 or P1 from Brazil infection, I think it's reasonable to think it would have decreased efficacy. But I also think it's reasonable to think that it will have a somewhat more robust um, uh, or retain its efficacy better than a monoclonal because it's, it's filled with a variety of antibodies to a variety of antigens, um, as opposed to being hyper-targeted to single antigenic um, targets. Great, terrific, yeah. I think the story, I, I think the other part of this story is, as, as we're learning more and more, and as people are starting to you, uh, sort of talk about, these variants may have been here a little longer than we think they have. Um, so there may be some variability, in, and perhaps we'll be talking about pooled plasma at some point, like we do with other things. Thank you both for that thoughtful answer. The other one I'm gonna put on my like evidence-based medicine hat here, and this for those who are SHM members, you may hear me talk about a couple of these things at some of the SHM uh, Converge talks that I'm giving, uh, not specifically on EBM, but on some of the other areas. One of the things about like guidelines and the whole grade criteria um, or just the grade criteria when thinking about evidence and how we pool it for meta-analysis and, and, and the BMJ has done a number of great editorial or thought pieces on how we should approach you know, randomized trials. The, the evidence pyramid should look, those lower levels should actually look more like geologic sedimentary levels that sort of flow and go up and down based on the quality of the individual study. You both had to wade through some areas where you looked at meta-analysis or pooled data, and specifically Dr. Bodner's, as well as Dr. Barcuda's, you know, there were some that it was kind of like the sort of observational stuff was really good and the randomized stuff wasn't. Some of them, the observational stuff was really poor, but then you got into a randomized, well-conducted trial with limited bias, and, and the response was much better than we even thought it would be. Do either of you want to talk about in the areas that you uh, sort of saw, did you see anything that jumped out at you, like why the narrative changed from one point to the other? I mean, obviously, Dr. Barracuda kind of gets the jumpstart on this because he, he talked about five treatments that are no longer really there where, you know, there were lots of almost non-controlled, like I did this at a thousand people and none of them died, so it must be great. And we all know which trials those are, um, you know, uh, versus controlled or clustered controlled. Do either of you want to talk about where you should really focus this type of lens on on how that evidence moves and changes? So I, I will take a stab at this first. Um, I think learning how to be humble in terms of the evidence for COVID, it, it, it's it, it should be humble, pretty much all caps, because. What we do, we're passionate about the care of the patient, the, the best interest for the patient. Uh, but 
these reports, the end-blinded cases that we saw in the beginning in pandemic, the earlier report about uh, permissive uh, hypoxemic is not quite allowed, we need to take a look at it as evidence uh, generator, not the EBM itself. Let's remember this did not exist uh, 14 months, at least in the U.S. ago. We're still dealing with diseases that we described a couple centuries ago, and we're still trying to build on that knowledge. So we came a long way. We want to think about something it would keep the safety aspect while we're looking at the, the efficacy, the drinking bleach. Uh, no, uh, remdesivir. We went into the clinical trials and said, okay, it's working, but we asked the second why, and then it became the subgroups, and then let's put it in a clinical context, and then we honed in. I don't think we will get, uh, and, and, and Dr. Berger, you, I saw in your talks about ABM and every SHM national meeting, uh, we're far from it, but we're, we're trying to inch toward it. We came a long way, and it's a dial, right? So it's faster to generate cases. It's harder to generate RCTs. And, and, and the truth is really in the middle. But our patient should be in the center of the care. And I think I would maybe uh, here, I'll, I'll say something to muddy the waters further um, uh, it, rather than clarify. So the amount of information that's been generated on COVID is just spectacular. And I think we all know that. And, and you really, one person can't keep up. Um, even if it was all you spent your time doing, and no one will pay us for that for the most part. So remember, P.05, right? That is, a, that is an arbitrary statistical decision. And that means that if you took 20 trials that had P.05 or less than P.05, one of them would have gotten it just by chance, right? And so how many trials have you seen come out for COVID in the last year? Um, and certainly more than 20, right? Hundreds, thousands, right? And some of those will have true statistical results with a P less than 0.05, but that is just gonna happen because that's how statistics work. Um, and um, so I, I think that what that means is you can never trust one data point. And, and in this sense, I mean a trial as a data point. But I think as you um, create a, a, you know, a web of knowledge and multiple data points, um, you get increasing certainty. And I also think if I had to look at one index to try to uh, to try to guide me into how much to trust or not trust, uh, I hesitate even to say this, but look at your N, right? Look at your sample size. Those uncontrolled case series often have the smallest Ns, right? And they have the highest chance of having statistical irregularity because of the smaller numbers. Um, whereas when you get into the thousands of patients, Certainly, if you're talking about a randomized control trial of thousands of patients, you're going to smooth out more of that statistical noise. If you're talking about a cohort of thousands of patients, you still need to be asking yourself about whether whether there might be, you know, inclusion bias or um, or um, treatment bias, uh, even in a large cohort, because we know it's there. Um, so, um, uh, multiple points of data. Make sure you're thinking about size and understand that even 0.05 is wrong, 0.05 five percent of the time. Thank you, thank you. I'm not going to mud the water more than this. Yeah. Uh, think about the patient. Think about the science. And and I think as a community, we're we're honing in. We're getting closer together. There will be less noise going forward and more um, data, real data coming our way.
Terrific, terrific. There are a number of questions. I don't think we'll be able to get all of them. I am going to go for one more for tocilizumab. There was a specific question about a, a, an older patient who was getting sicker in the hospital, had some chronic stuff, but then, you know, got really sick and, and the CRP kind of jumped up. Their question is, as they were getting sicker, is the CRP a good marker for cytokine storm in the setting of worsening hypoxia? And would that trigger your thoughts to justify using tocilizumab at that point? And then the second part of the question that I would ask is somebody asked, what do you do with monoclonal antibodies and somebody who got vaccinated and now is testing positive and hypoxic and coming into your hospital? So um, the first question is uh, use of CRP in the setting of tocilizumab. So, um, the, the reason I included CRP in those, in those case studies was because it was a specific inclusion criteria for, for the recovery trial. Um, and and I, I wanted to present a case where I could say they would have met the inclusion criteria. Um, but I, I think uh, we could do a whole other session on risk prediction tools and calculators. And, and I, I'm fascinated by it, and I'm not an expert as much as I would like to be. But you know, much of what I've read has shown that CRP is a predictor, but if you look at almost any of bad outcomes in general, if you look at almost any of the common labs that have been checked on and off throughout the pandemic, E-dimer, um, LDH, ferritin, they all have predictive value for bad outcomes uh, to varying degrees. I think clinically what um, I know I see, and, and hence speaking with some of my colleagues who do a lot of direct COVID care, is for CRP specifically, the degree of elevation on admission per se um, it doesn't necessarily make us feel like this person's certainly going to do well or do poorly, but the trend helps us inform our care. Um, I've had plenty of people come in with a CRP of 10 who do fine, um, and I've had people who play people come in with a CRP of four and do poorly. Um, and so, so that level per se, I, I don't feel like my clinical gestalt is as informative as the trend. Um, I think that in, in structuring the recovery trial, you know, we've learned more and more that you need stage of illness and stage of inflammatory response specific treatment groups. And that's why um, these trials are trying to identify the right subpopulation, right? If you give convalescent plasma to people 10 days in, it doesn't work, but maybe it does one day in, right? If you give remdesivir to people um, with hypoxia three days in, it does work, but not on mechanically ventilated 14 days in because they're no longer by remix. So um, uh, they chose to use a, a common marker of infl inflammation because it's a fairly pragmatic approach to say, to select for a group who had a higher likelihood of, of response to treatment with an anti-inflammatory. Um, so I don't think there's anything magic about CRP, uh, but it, it's ruling them in um, to a more inflammatory group, therefore having a higher chance of responding to an anti-inflammatory uh, agent. The, the second question was on flu vaccine coming in. Now you have it or you're testing positive, thought on, are they, should they be eligible for convalescent plasma? So um, if you've gotten COVID vaccinated and now you're coming in with COVID symptoms and um, you're- a positive PCR. Yeah, a positive PCR. I think that those who have been vaccinated should be treated, their clinical disease should be treated like anyone else's clinical disease, right? So even, even Pfizer and Moderna, which have efficacies in the mid nineties, 5%, that still meant they had 5% of people getting COVID, yeah. right? And so I don't think we have any data to tell us that in that 5% five, that 5 group who still gets COVID, um, they should necessarily be treated differently. Um, 
so for, for now, that would be my take. But again, that that may change as we learn more. Terrific. Thank you. I thank you all for joining us. I hope you got a lot out of it. This was a really informative talk. I would thank Dr. Barcuda and Dr. Bodner for um, really taking a look at all that data and presenting it all for us. It's such a fascinating topic and thank you. And thank you all for joining us. It really means a lot to us.